From the minds of two doctoral students, Race to Education is the podcast that explores the impact of race on education in America. As your hosts, we dive deep into the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latinx communities as they navigate the intricacies of learning in the United States. This is Race to Education. Hey, Madison. Hey, Fazia. What's up? Nothing much. You know, just here excited about our podcast. I'm very excited about this podcast, too. It's like our COVID baby. It really is. Just in audio form. And we get to talk about what we really love, and that is education. I know. We really love putting race in there because we know how important it is. And before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, Fazia? I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, which is a pretty segregated place, if you really think about it, um, especially residentially. And when I was entering into pre-K, there was this opposite busing program. And my mom put down on my application that I was Egyptian, which if you know anything about the census, that would categorize you as being white. White, I am not. But they needed white students to come to this school that was in a more urban neighborhood. And so that's how I got into pre-K. And when I arrived, they were like, um, they were a little confused. <laughs> but you know what? It is what it is. And I have, right? Who that girl? Fosia. Does Fosia sound like a white girl's name? It does not. Um, no. But it was a great experience for me. I actually had one of my most impactful teachers of my entire academic history in that school. And I think about her to this day. She really just took me under her wing. She gave me like my first journal. We kept in touch throughout. Miss um, Harrow, she was really great and really, really important educator for my development. On the opposite spectrum, I went to school in East Harlem, very, very urban, as you already know, residentially segregated. So I went to school with mostly Black and Puerto Rican students. My middle school and high school is really interesting because it was one of those you needed a little test to get in, but it wasn't as prestigious as other schools in the area. And there was a big difference in those particular communities because what you see is this group of people who are really wanting to get a good education. And then they're met at the door with these very young Teach for America types ready to take on the world, ready to change everything. And they would be gone within a year or two. And we really felt that. And I think that that's kind of started me really thinking about why is education like this? Why are we getting this sort of experience that I know that was very different from some of my white peers who went to school on the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side. So a lot of things were running through my mind. I think that's how I got really interested in education policy. And it's really interesting too, right? Because I only mentioned my my pre-K experience. Like afterwards, I ended up going to my local neighborhood school, which was a really great school um, in Buffalo. And I was there until about the beginning of fifth grade until we moved downstate to Staten Island. And that was really interesting. My mom didn't want me going to like New York City public schools because she was a product of them. She especially didn't want me going to school in Staten Island. So she put my brother and I, she put us in this private Muslim school. And that was a really interesting experience. And by interesting, I mean terrible because, you know, I had to deal with issues of race that I think I didn't have to deal with before in my K through five experience because the people in my school, we were pretty mixed. You know, I had a, a lot of white students, but also a lot of black students. And it was just a really good schooling experience. But then once I got to private Muslim school, it was a complete culture shock. My dad is African-American 
And my mom is Egyptian and Jamaican. And going into this Muslim school, there were mostly Arabs and like Pakistanis and some of the Egyptians who were there, like they were like, oh, you're not really Egyptian. So I was like, oh, I guess I must not really be Egyptian, you know? So like it pushed me away from even this like relationship with who I was and my identity. It really had damaging effects for both me and my brother. But then you fast forward to high school and I'm in my local high school in Clifton High School. And I was tracked on like more the gifted route. So I was taking honors courses. And I always wondered why my experience was different than a lot of my peers, like the students who looked like me. Like we were a handful of black students. And most of us were in college prep honors classes, but it wasn't the case all around for the 20 of us that were there. But it was still a really good experience. And I I had a supportive guidance counselor and I consider myself lucky and I'm thankful that my mom had the wherewithal to know how to navigate these systems. Right. So she had the capital. Right. If you want to get academic, she had like the the cultural capital and the know-how to navigate these schooling systems because she comes from a family of New York City public educators. So she knew what to look for. And I know that's not the case for everyone. I think that's quite interesting because we have to get away from like students getting lucky. We have to get away from students basically fighting for spots at certain schools. Like education should be something that everyone gets, but not just get, but like having a really high quality education. That's an experience that we need to have. Exactly. It shouldn't be luck of the draw. Right. It shouldn't be luck of the draw. It shouldn't be this... I must reach, I must lean into my whiteness to get this good education. We should still be able to keep ourselves intact while pursuing a good education. I think that that kind of led us into the work that we're interested in and how race is so important to the work that we're doing that we decided to kind of come to this space. And I think a lot of it has to do with the work that we were doing. So I know that I met Fazia at a nonprofit that worked with students from the inner city. So can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so I moved back to the U.S., to New York, after having been in Egypt for almost four years. I did a master's in international human rights law where I focused on the right to education. And it really got me thinking about, you know, this right to education, I'm looking at it in a developing country. But what about back home? Like, we have a lot of, like, the same issues. And I was like, so what makes us, quote unquote, developed, you know, in our education system when we have such disparities, often those that mirror those that happen in developing countries? And I started working for this nonprofit that was travel-based, but it's education travel-based. And they worked with students who were in larger cities, so particularly in New York and in the Bay Area, later expanded to Chicago. But they worked with students who were in inner city schools, as you can say, (laughs) or more urban schools. Air quotes, right? Big air quotes. Yeah, big air quotes or urban schools. And also students who were in more affluent areas and middle-income areas. And this whole idea was that, you know, travel changes your perspective. And so it was social justice oriented. I mean, and there were a lot of issues with it, but I was fortunate enough to meet some really great educators and some amazing students. And it led me to questioning how we approach education, especially how nonprofits approach education. It was this whole idea of pick yourself up by the bootstrap, very neoliberal kind of thought towards education. And I didn't necessarily like the treatment of students of color and the stereotypes or assumptions that came along along with the students of color, Black and Latino, I should say. It led me to question everything that I was doing. It was a great experience because I learned what I won't accept in education. And it led me towards my current position in my doctoral program, which Madison and I are doing together. Yippee. (laughs) We tired. (laughs) So my work is working with young men in New York City, specifically in Brownsville, New York, the Eagle Academy for Young Men, number two. 
we had this opportunity to work together and to take some of my young men to Dominican Republic. And I thought that that was a really phenomenal experience, but I do echo some of your concerns about how are we looking at these students? Are we actually just using their bodies to promote, you know, this social justice model that exists? But we also know that it's not always to the benefit of those students. And I'm seeing that also in education. You see that quite frequently in this. I work with mostly young men of color. It's a school that started back in 2004 in the Bronx. And then it went over to Brownsville and then Queens and Staten Island and New York. And the point was to be in neighborhoods where It was a clear school to prison pipeline. So we were supposed to be schools that are the intervention so that students of color do not end up through that pipeline. So that's kind of where the philosophical stance is as that we have to be an open enrollment school. We have to allow all students that identify as being male. And we have to be in a position where we provide them the same sort of resources that exist in private schools throughout New York City. It's not easy, it's not perfect, but we definitely do try our best to give our students all that they need to succeed. And I think that that's why we're doing this work. And it kind of led me into the research that I'm doing. And I know that we have kind of looking at a similar population. Um, So could you talk about the research interests on your end? Yeah, I think we all come to our, you know, when, when you start to pursue a graduate degree, we all come to these positions based on our lived experiences, right? And a huge part of it for me was that why is it that I got the luck of the draw, right? Why is it that I was allowed to pursue the things that I was able to pursue? And I see so many people who look like me that haven't had the same opportunities or who've had to work even harder, you know, not to discredit the work that I've done, but I know that I have been fortunate in many ways. So when I came into my doctoral program, I really wanted to look at issues of access to equitable and quality education among Black students and their families. And it ultimately led me to looking at the testing phenomenon and standards movement. So I'm looking at how Black parents navigate the opt-out movement Now, if you don't know anything about the opt-out movement, it's pretty sizable here in New York City. And what's occurred with it is that it first started with having some white parents from wealthy areas opting their children out of standardized testing because they thought it was going to impact them in a way that they didn't want to conflict with their learning. They thought that it took away from the whole child perspective and all these different reasons. There were a lot of criticisms, especially coming from the federal government. Former Secretary of Education Arne Duncan is infamous for saying, you know, that this was a white soccer mom kind of movement and they were upset that their kids would no longer be considered special. And the whole idea behind all these like standardized tests was that this was a way to, you know, to to reduce the achievement gap. Quite the opposite. But that's again, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, I have a dissertation to write on it. But I was really concerned with, you know, does, how does this movement appeal to Black folks at all? Like, why, what are Black folks' reasonings for deciding to opt their children out of testing? And what's emerging is that there's a lot of difference in how decisions are being made for Black parents versus how white parents make decisions. And so overall, like, that's my focus right now for my dissertation. But overall, I am concerned with issues of access to quality and equitable education. Yeah, and I think when we're thinking about the theme of access, My research focuses on how when we deny students the right to be in school via disciplinary policies that are in New York City, then they do not have access to a quality education. So my research looks at school discipline and policy that impacts young men of color in K-12 settings. I like to kind of think of myself as a critical studies researcher. What's interesting now 
We were seeing a movement to completely remove police from schools, which is the area that I've studied for quite some time. Today, there are 5,322 school safety agents and 189 uniformed police officers. This balloons the budget astronomically, and we spent a lot of money, a lot, a lot of money monitoring, controlling black and brown bodies in our schools. So I'm very interested, more specifically, how principals make sense of these disciplinary policies in their schools. And more importantly, how do they have these relationships with the security resource officers in the school? So I think that that's kind of my overall arching uh, look. But as we go along, I might find some other things. As you know, with research, you keep digging and digging and digging and something emerges. That makes sense, too, because... When you think about how disproportionate the punishment is for black and brown students for the same transgressions, as minor or major as they may be compared to their white counterparts, it's not the same at all, not even close, right? And so there's this policing, there's this natural assumption that we're they are black and Latino young men are either criminals or they just don't have it together, right? So they're, they're treated differently. And it's really unfortunate too, because then that leads into the prison, school to prison pipeline. And we got a lot to discuss on this podcast. <laughs> we, got, we got a lot. We can, we can tell you our dissertation or our dissertation <laughs> to be on this podcast, which might actually be an interesting approach to how people do dissertations, right? Yeah, right. There's a podcast. You got to listen there, to the whole season. There's a podcast. There's listen to the whole season to get all of my points. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, prove it. Prove it. This podcast is a true labor of love. We want to open dialogue about how education and race intersect in America. With every episode, we'll bring you some of the hottest topics in education and discuss how it impacts Black and Brown communities. And we'll also be bringing you special guests that will share their expertise. And last but not least, we want to hear from you. How do you experience education in your city? What are your pressing issues or questions? And to get the conversation started, we asked people what their thoughts were on race, racism, and education. For me, as a Black person, some of my shared experiences with other Black people might be around going to get my hair done and using hot combs or getting braids, or the experiences of going to family gatherings and the type of music that's played, the type of food that's served. I think that as Black people, some of our shared cultural understanding is around racism. I don't necessarily think that every Black person is working from the same shared definition of racism. I don't even think that every single Black person accepts that racism exists. And I think we can see that with people like Kanye West and the ideology that he has accepted over the past few years, or even some of the Black people associated with the current president's administration and their views about race and racism. But I do think that for many Black people, being followed in a store, being stopped by the police, the conditions of Black schools and Black neighborhoods have explanations that are largely connected to what racism is and how it has impacted our lives. One time where I've been directly impacted because of my race is the moment that I was stopped by the police leaving the bank. And that was when I was in Central Pennsylvania at Susquehanna University. It was a moment where I realized that I was still nigga at the end of the day. I was in fully suited up. I was wearing my tie, everything, Susquehanna colors. And in that moment, it just made me realize no matter what I look like, no matter how I was dressed, I was going to be stopped regardless. And they just did not think I should have had any business in the bank. And so in that moment, I was one, dead irritated, but it also just reminded me that it doesn't matter if growing up in the hood or being a college graduate, 
they are going to see your skin. They are going to question you regardless. So it really started to navigate, really influenced how I started moving, moving forward, no matter what. There was nothing that separated me out from my boys back at home versus the college kids that I went to school with now. So I really learned to one, humble myself, but then also understand that the system doesn't care. They see your black skin and that's how you operate. So (laughs) yeah, I think that's one time when I was super directly impacted because of my race was knowing that I would always be second guessed and I, my skin would come before anything else. When I think about race, I automatically think about that clinical definition that you are taught at some point in your life where you learn that race is a social construct and it doesn't really exist in like a clinical or maybe a biological sense. And I remember feeling really empowered when I learned that because for me undergirded this notion that for people who were racist, they were essentially basing it on this idea that was like imaginary. However, now when I look at it, I think it almost makes race inconsequential. And I think that race impacts so much of our daily lives and penetrates every layer of our society. And I can only speak to living in America because that's where I spent most of my life. But we know that like across the world, we see racism. And we know that race can decide the spaces and places in which you are allowed to exist. As you heard, the views on race and education are varied, but at the center is inequality. And that's what we want to peel back on this podcast. How do people form these ideas? What influences people's understanding of education? And we're going to go a lot deeper, but not today. This is just the intro, just to let you know who we are and what we're here to do. So over the next season, Race Through Education will take you through deep conversations surrounding race and education with expert guest speakers who are occupying these spaces and doing the groundwork to tackle education's inequities. We will also be taking you through topics in education like identity, the U.S. legal system and its impact on schooling, why Black and Latinx teachers are necessary, and much, much more. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at racethrougheducation underscore podcast. You can also visit us at www.racethrougheducation.com for podcast updates, highlights, resources, and more. And finally, let us know how you feel. Send us an email at racethrougheducation at gmail.com for a chance to have your questions read on the show. Thanks for listening to Race Through Education. We'll see you next week.